Well, good morning. Um, This morning, I want to talk a little bit about a very interesting type of book. I know, it's, uh, that's a shocker. I love books. And uh, one of the books that I have not read a lot of are autobiographies. And I'll tell you why. Um, I like biographies. Biographies are the study of a person's life. So you read about, say, John Adams. There's a really good biography by David McCulloch on John Adams. Really good, really interesting. He's an expert historian, lays it out pretty well. Then you've got books that are not biographies, but autobiographies, like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin's autobiography is considered a classic, uh, but really, it's not really Benjamin Franklin's story, it's just Benjamin Franklin kind of talking about himself. And so, I've always struggled with autobiographies, because how many of us are going to write our story and include all the bad things that we did? or include all the warts and all the things that weren't necessarily the most positive. So in there, you don't hear about the times that Benjamin Franklin had to apologize for his sharp tongue. You don't hear Benjamin Franklin going, oh, I was wrong about this experiment. You're only hearing all the good things that Benjamin Franklin did. So autobiographies are very interesting. I'm always impressed when we get an autobiography by a 20-year-old. There's a few that have just come out recently um, where a 20-year-old musician decides that she's going to write her life story at 20. There's also stories and biographies out there that um, put people in a good light and just are almost like worshipful. They're called hagiographies, which is a cool, a cool word. But it means a, a biography that's not really telling the truth, but it's just telling how great this person is. And it's like the worst form of an autobiography. Each of us, though... We have a biography that is being written about us. And in most of the cases, we want to be the hero of our own story. I challenge you to turn the TV on, and if you do leave them on for the commercials, um, to, to try to find a single commercial that's not about you. Okay, now you go, wait, oh, hold on a second. I saw a commercial for women's products. It's not for me, okay? Uh, that's not what I mean. What I mean is try to find a commercial that says, do this for somebody else. Those are really rare. They're so rare that if they pop up all of a sudden, we go, oh, that was a really good commercial. Instead of telling me I need a hamburger and a new car and I need this and I need that, it's saying I should do something. See, the human nature we have inside of us is we all want to be the hero of our story. We want to write our, old, our own story. And really, this is not how God set up the universe, is it? We are not the main character. We are supporting characters. We are not the main person in the story of the universe. Typically, we think of our lives as a story which other people come in as supporting characters. I'm the main character. And over here, I have the supporting character of my parents and the supporting character of my wife. And oh, and here's Jesus as another supporting character. Today, we want to reframe that. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about us leaving our little teeny story, which sadly Most of us are going to live a short life and then not change the world and instead be grafted into the story of eternity, the story that supreme beings like angels long to see. And so we need to understand we're a part of God's story. 
and his story is triumphant. One author writes, if you're a child of God, you've been invited into a bigger story, a much bigger story, the grand story of redemption. This is your biography. Better than any impressive thing you could accomplish in your life, your life story is a biography of wisdom and grace written by another. Every twist of the plot is for the best. Every turn he writes into your story is the right turn. Every new character or unexpected event is a tool of his grace. Each new chapter advances his purpose. See, when we are a part of the God's history, the story that he is writing, we know that it's going somewhere and it's good. We don't have to imagine this is a good thing even though it was a bad thing. So today, the point of our final sermon, this is our final sermon in our church series, is to say, after all the stuff that we've studied, we've studied the gospel, we've studied why we do church in multiple campuses and multiple places, we talked about what church is like here, we talked about our life group model last week, today we finish with us as individuals, but don't miss the point on this. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, because if you know the Lone Ranger, he was never alone, was he? Christians cannot be Lone Ranger Christians. We need each other. And so today, this is changing our story from a me-centered autobiography to entering into the biography that all of us are a part of as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, if you're not already there, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Our main point today being that the life of Christ within us transforms us. It changes how our relationships work, how our outlook on life is, and changes our actions ultimately. So the passage that Katie just read a second ago starts with the words, put on then. So we're going to start right there. The word then is actually the most important word of those, of those three, at least the most important for the start of this sermon. Paul is referencing all that he's said before. And this is what's hard with jumping into the middle of a book is, you know, there's been three whole chapters of Paul explaining stuff, and Paul doesn't waste words. And so this, this is hard, but we're going to try to get our minds wrapped around this. Paul says, then, so because of what I've just said, because of the things that I've mentioned, put on something. So what did he mention? Let's back up a little bit to verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So the first thing he says is there's this old way of life that you must kill. You must put to death. Then in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So the starting place that we have is that he says, first and foremost, you've got to strip off everything of the old man or the old woman. Get rid of it all. And he lists them. These are not lists to be like, well, he doesn't say this, so I can do that. No, he's saying all of the sin nature needs to be something that we are working to get rid of. 
because Christ has gotten rid of it for us. So this is our response to what Christ has done. So now we get into our chapter, our section, verse 12. This is the character of Christ that we're to put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. So he says, put on. This literally means to clothe yourself. It's in the Greek aorist imperative. I said that for my son who's in Greek class right now because he knows what that means. This speaks of an action that is imbued with urgency, like get to it now. You know, it's not like, oh, if you can get around to it. No, this is do it and do it now. And Paul says the reason we're to put these on is because we are chosen, we are holy, and we are beloved. These are three terms that are very familiar if you know your Bible. In the Old Testament, Israel was called chosen, was called holy, and was called beloved. This is not to say that we are replacing Israel. That's not the point. The point is God has a way that he does things. He has a pattern. And the pattern that he does is he reaches out and he grabs people and makes them his own. He then makes them set apart, puts them apart from everybody else, and then he lavishes his love on them. God's chosen ones. This literally, the word there is God's elected ones. Now, the doctrine of election is not a very popular doctrine. It's not one we're going to be spending a lot of time on here today. But understand that God joyfully chose you. You weren't the last one on the wall at the end of the P.E. picking of teams. Oh, I'm stuck with that one. No, this is God going, I picked my team and you're on it. I once heard it explained like this. It was like a school child who for some reason was being bullied because she was an adopted child. Her response to it was, your parents had to have you. My parents chose me. So take that, bullies. This is the way God looks at us. It's not that he's like, okay, well, I guess I'm stuck. No, he goes, I am choosing you. Now, before your pride gets too high, remember that we've got humility coming in a minute. But understand this, that this is a joyful experience. This is God's gracious will. He's choosing those that he is going to make holy. Holy means to be put aside, to be set apart, to be not like the rest. We think of holy a lot of times, and it's this, we have to be this something that we're not. No, what we are to be is we're to be who we are in Christ. And he does that work in us. And then beloved, God's amazing, immeasurable love poured out on us. Now, I told you that was what Israel was called, right? But it's even better than that. This is what Jesus was called. Jesus himself is called God's chosen one. Luke 23, 35, 1 Peter 2, 4. He's called God's holy one. Luke 4, 34, Acts 3, 14. And the beloved of the Father, Matthew 17, 5, Luke 3, 22. So what we are called to here is we're called to look like Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus, to act like Jesus which fits with the end of this passage when it says we are his representatives here on earth. Because see, here's the problem. The problem we have with, with, with this chosen, holy, and beloved is we kind of sit back and go, God did all the work, I just kind of get all the blessing. I just sit back and do my own thing. After all, I don't want to be somebody who tries to earn my salvation. That should be very clear that that's not the way this thing works. 
It doesn't work that I do certain things and that makes me holy. It doesn't work that I do certain things and I earn salvation. You are saved to go do good works, not by your good works. Now, our world and our flesh does the opposite of this, doesn't it? The world says, you do good things to earn something. And sometimes we as Christians, when we buy into that, we feel guilty. We feel like a mercenary, right? Like the only reason I'm loving my neighbor is so that I can go to heaven. So they're an ends to a means, not me just doing goodness for them. But see, this is where the Bible frees us up. The Bible frees us up to just do good. Why? Because good has been done to us. One author writes this, shouldn't such blessings have been held forth as a reward, as a pot of gold? I mean, isn't that kind of what we do parenting, right? If you do this, there's dessert. If you don't do this, there's no dessert. Like we kind of hold out this good thing for it. No, see, God does the opposite. He goes, here's the good thing and you have it. Now respond to me correctly. Paul believes this is the foundation that undergirds all of our actions. Not guilt, not trying to earn it, but in reaction to the fact that it's been given to us as a free gift. Kind of, you know, the idea that God shows us kind of, in my mind, stirred up like, what would that look like for me? So I kind of imagined back in, back in college as a history major, and I was an average, mediocre student. I did okay. I had some history that I really liked. I really loved World War II history. And there was this one author that I read everything of his. His name was Stephen Ambrose. Um, He wrote Band of Brothers, D-Day, Citizen Soldiers, and so on. A bunch of books. This would be like me as a lowly B-minus, C-plus student sitting at George Fox, getting a letter in the mail. Stephen Ambrose is going to make you his personal assistant, and you're going to write books with him. What would my response be? Sweet, I don't got to do anything. I'm just going to sit there and get the royalties, you know, and and travel with him, and that's it. Now, I tell you what, even a lowly student like myself, I'm going to bust my behind to make sure that I am meeting his standards, that I am getting up there with him. Not because I feel like it's going to earn it, but it's because I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And that's just a, a, a World War II historian, We have the God of the universe going, you're on my team, get in here. What should our response be? These items that are listed here that we're going to see today are all things that we're called to do, but our response is because of what Jesus did. We got to make sure we get this in the right order because Colossians has three chapters before we're at where we're at now. We do this to respond to Jesus' death with gratitude, and we do it in the power of Jesus' death. Sin is broken. It's beaten. So now I can live and not try to earn my way to heaven. So what he's saying here at the beginning is he's saying, put off the dirty clothes and put on clean clothes. I mean, is there anything worse than you've just been working and you got all dirty and you go into the shower and you forgot to get a change of clothes and you get out of the shower and you go, two options. One, not a good option. The other one is to put these clothes back on and go get the clean clothes, right? And that's the worst feeling, sweaty, dirty, nasty clothes on a clean body. That's what it should feel like when we think about what life is like as a Christian. Why are we going back to those nasty clothes? 
Paul says instead, pull on the new clothes. In Romans 13, verse 14, he doesn't even say the characteristics that he says here. Instead, he says, put on Jesus. Talk about clean clothes. The Son of God, the second member of the Trinity's perfection. Put it on. And so these features are to be characteristics of Jesus. So let's look at them. So the first two are how we treat others. How we treat others. And the words are compassionate and with kindness. Compassionate hearts literally means bowels of mercy. Now, I'm really glad that unlike the ancients who saw the stomach, the bowels, as the source of romantic feelings and love and genuine emotions. I'm glad we've moved to heart because it's a little less awkward, especially at Valentine's Day. Honey, I love you with my entire bowels. That doesn't really do much. But if you think about it, they had a good reason for this, right? I mean, you all know there were times when you felt some emotion and it felt like there were like pterodactyls flying around in your stomach, right? And, and that's what they were reacting to. They said, well, that seems to be the place that the emotions reside. So what he's saying here is he's saying compassionate emotions, tenderness towards those who are suffering, caring for those in times of need. So feelings of emotion to care for those. Then he says kindness. Kindness is a goodness that invades all of us. Unfortunately, kindness is in short supply in our world today. Now, lest we think that it's just a Twitter thing or an online thing or a talking heads on the TV thing, I want to share a story about George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill, both very colorful individuals. George Bernard Shaw, who had just written his first play, sent this to Winston Churchill. Sir, I have reserved for you two tickets to my first night. Come and bring a friend if you have one. Winston Churchill, who also was a little bit of a creative man, responded, impossible to come the first night. We'll come to the second night if you have one. <laughs> Being unkind is very easy. Being kind is hard. Kindness, though, is a quality of God. We should expect it to be difficult for us because our flesh wars against it. Our flesh wants to be unkind. Our flesh wants our pound of flesh. But when we're like God in this, we're going to be just exactly like his son. Because remember, it's his kindness that leads to repentance. It's not the zinger. It's not the putting them down that leads to repentance. It's his kindness. So these are how we are to treat others. The second section is the state of mind we are to possess. So how is our mind supposed to be oriented as we're working through this? The first one is humility. This is thinking highly of others and soberly of you. Not highly of others and lowly of me, but soberly, realistically. And if you're doing okay, then you're okay, but it's not self-loathing. There's a phrase that somebody has attributed to C.S. Lewis that says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Well, actually, C.S. Lewis didn't say that, but it still is a very good phrase. What C.S. Lewis did say was, when you meet someone who's humble, you don't notice they're humble, because all they're doing is focusing on you, and they just seem like a really nice person who really listens well and who really is attentive and really seems to care about you, because that's what a humble person does. And so this humility that we are to have is not to be, oh, woe is me, I'm so humble. It's to be focusing on the other. 
The second word is meekness. Meekness. Now, meekness kind of has uh, some interesting connotations. It's like something small and something weak and something unworthy, kind of laid back, kind of passive. One comedian said that he was going to make a group of pe- a, a, a group for the meek people to be in. He said their motto would be, the meek shall inherit the earth, as long as it's okay with everybody. And this is incorrect, though. Meekness is gentleness. It's power under control. It's steel-like strength that is held in check until needed. It reminds me of the gymnasts, you know, when we watch the Olympics and you see the two rings and these incredibly ripped guys and gals get out and they're doing all the rings and they're like spinning and they've got all this centrifugal force and all of a sudden they just go, oom, and they stop. And you realize, okay, of all the things you've been witnessing, that might have been the hardest move ever, to stop all of your momentum and hold yourself totally horizontal without any shakes, without any, you know, like all of us, to stop that. That is strength under control. And that's exactly what meekness is. It's not saying I got to be weak. It's got to be saying I use my strength only when necessary. The rest of the time, it's under control. So we see compassionate and kind. We see humble and meek. And then third, we see how we should act when we are mistreated. Paul gives us three things, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiveness. The end of verse 2 says, and patience. And then 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. The word patience is the word long-suffering. What this means is you're not quick to be upset at someone. You're not angry at them immediately, but giving them space. It's self-restraint that allows you to bear injury without retaliating. Bearing with one another is very similar, and it's kind of interesting how Paul words this. He says you're out to have patience, you're to bear with one another, and you're to forgive. And really, these three kind of all go together. The bearing with means to sustain or endure, fits perfectly with patience. But this forgiveness one is huge. This is a really big deal. One author writes, much of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians can be traced to unforgivableness, unforgiveness. It isn't hard to figure out why once we realize that unforgiveness breeds bitterness, resentment, anger, unkindness, and even despair. And if you think about it, That's a lot like the stuff we were supposed to take off. So forgiveness begets forgiveness. And this is interesting because this this ties right into where we left off in Matthew last May. We're going to go a little farther back. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, back in May, we were in Matthew chapter 18, and we talked about the unmerciful servant. This was a story, if you remember, this man had accrued billions, trillions of dollars of debt. And he went to his master, and his master's like, hey, man, you owe me like 100 lifetimes worth of money, so I'm going to have to put you in jail. And the guy goes, please, sir, don't do that. Don't do that. Forgive me my debt. And the master goes, okay, $100 trillion, zero. And the servant, out of his lack of gratitude, went out and found someone who owed a week's wages and threw him in jail. 
When the master found out, the master was furious, and he went and grabbed that servant and threw him in jail for the rest of his life. And Jesus finishes up this parable by saying, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is an important idea. Spurgeon writes, even as Christ forgave us, we are bidden to forgive others. What nobler pattern could we have been chosen? Your Lord stands before you. You remember how he forgave you. I'm sure you can give earnest heed to exhortation to forgive. Lord has forgiven you. This is to be our motive, to forgive from the heart because we have been forgiven. Now the problem is, is that there's a lot of misunderstandings of forgiveness. So I found a few myths and a few truths that I want to point out to you. The first one is forget, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. You know, if we try to forget something, we end up what? Remembering it, right? The more harder you try to forget something, the more you're able to remember it. So this is not what forgiveness is about. The second thing we see is that forgiveness, forgiving someone does not mean you no longer feel pain. There's kind of this pressure that we as Christians kind of put on ourselves and maybe on each other, that once we've forgiven someone, we're not allowed to still be hurting. And that's, that's, not, what, that's not the case. That's not the way it works. Forgiving someone, this is the third one, forgiving someone who has sinned against you doesn't mean you cease longing for justice. You just don't deal it out. See, that's how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is me saying, I am not going to punish you for what you did to me. But it also doesn't mean that we have to go, well, I forgave them. The government shouldn't punish them. The police shouldn't arrest them. That's not the way it works. And ultimately, God is the judge of them, not you. The fourth thing we see is that forgiveness does not mean you are to make it easy to be hurt again. Sometimes when someone hurts you and you forgive them, it doesn't mean you put yourself back in that position. It might be that you have to have new boundaries. It may even be that that relationship needs to not be together anymore. And finally, forgiveness is rarely a one-time climactic event. It's often a lifelong process of forgiving. Some of you have been hurt deeply, and that forgiving is something you're going to have to do over and over again. But this is where we preach to ourselves the truth of, I have been forgiven much, so I am capable because of Christ to forgive much. So those are the myths. What are the truths? Well, the first one is, is that God in Christ forgave us by absorbing all of the painful consequences of sin in his body. So the first thing we must remember, in order to forgive, we must be realizing that we have been forgiven. And when we look at what Christ did, he took all of our consequences, took all of them. All of what was meted out on him on the cross was what we deserved. The second thing we see is that God forgave us in Christ by canceling our debt just like the master did. A debt that we could never pay is not held against us anymore. The third truth about forgiveness, forgiving others as God has forgiven us means we resolve to revoke our right to revenge. And this is huge because our world still works on this, doesn't it? Our world still works on you hurt me, I get to hurt you back and then some and so on and so forth. People are making millions and millions of dollars in our world right now by telling you that's the person to blame, let's go get them. That's not the way the Bible works. The Bible works the opposite. I don't demand revenge. 
The fourth one, forgiving others as God has forgiven them, forgiven you, means you're determined to do them good rather than evil. Romans 12, 17 through 21 talks about that. I'm reminded of a, of a pastor in Canada who was arrested for his church meeting in defiance of their, of their COVID restrictions. He knew that this was coming because every week, policemen would come and sit in his service. And you know what he did for those policemen? He singled them out and he said, let's thank them for their service. Let's thank them for keeping order in this city. And his church gave them standing ovations. The men and women who were there to arrest him, he and his church thanked for their service. When evil is brought towards us, a forgiving heart says, I am going to turn around and give you good. You're going to be evil, I'm going to be good. Because Christ was good to me when I was evil to him. The fifth one, God forgave us in Christ by reconciling us to himself and by restoring the relationship that sin had shattered. Sometimes this means when you forgive somebody, they're still in the sin, they may get mad at you. They may hate you. They may not take your forgiveness. But that's not on you. That's between them and the Lord. Your job is to forgive. Because see, here's the point. This is the point that I want to get at. No matter how bad you have been hurt, no matter what has been done to you, taking all of the abuse that you've had, and I know some of you have had some very abusive situations in your life. If you take all of that, it is infinitesimal compared to what our abuse to our Heavenly Father has been. I mean, think about that for a second. We are created by God, and yet we rebel against our Creator over and over and over again. Our Creator, not our friend, not our brother, not our husband or wife, not our children, but the one who owns every single cell. You guys get that every single cell has made by God on it in your body? all 50 trillion of them, we don't belong to us. Story's not our story. It's his story. We only exist because of him, but yet we thumb our noses at him. And in spite of all that, in spite of all of our indifference, he sent his son to die for us. That's the forgiveness that we are to live in and then allow to spill out into the world around us. So how are we supposed to do this? Paul has listed a whole list of things and we've talked about it's, you know, we've got to stand in Christ. What does this look like? Well, what we first need to do that ties it all together is we need to pray that the Lord gives us one thing and that is love for others. Love ties this whole thing together. And he says this in verse 14. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This word love is the word agape. It's the God-sized love. It's the kind of love that we can't do without God's help. It's loving someone in spite of what they do, not because of what they do. Remember, we see this multiple times, where if you love those who love you, so that's what the world does. But if you love those who hate you, now you're talking about God kind of love. Love is like a cloak that goes over us. It's what holds all the virtues together. It's the last garment. It's a belt. Puts them all together. One author says it's kind of like, it's kind of like the mortar that holds us together. 
And if you think about it, this shouldn't be a surprise because Paul has said something very similar in probably one of the more famous passages in all of the world in 1 Corinthians 13. You've been to weddings. You've heard this, this passage. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, that you're doing pretty well right there, as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I'm a zero. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, you're a martyr for the faith but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's very clear that love is the driving factor. Our love for the Lord, our love for others. I mean, can't we just agree that if we went into a room full of people that were compassionate and humble and meek and patient, wouldn't we just say that was a great room? That would be an awesome room to be in. But Paul doesn't want us to miss the fact that this is not a room that humans can accomplish on their own. This is not something that if we just get all the nations together and they just talk it out, we're going to be able to have a room full of people at peace with each other. This only comes because of Christ. This love is the glue that unites all Christian qualities. It's the mortar that holds it together. Without love, knowledge is but selfish and arrogant acquisition. Without love, purity is self-righteousness. Without love, zeal is an aimless endeavor. Without love, hope is a fool's deception. Love, as it were, holds it all together. So did Paul kind of soften this? He just said, forgive as God forgave you, but he says, oh, throw in some love. Actually, no, he made it more intense. We are to love as Christ loved. Last Saturday, 55 men showed up here and we had a men's breakfast in the other room. And I challenged the men with Ephesians, where it says men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her, to lay down your lives for your wives. And that's what the Bible says clearly for men, for husbands. But it also has this to say for all of us, John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. This love is, the, is the, the, the thing that we are to be known for. It's the thing that's supposed to cover all of us. So Paul has laid this out for us. And now verses 15 through 17, as we're putting off the old self and putting on the new, there are three things that we're going to be filled with. The fullness of Christ's peace, the fullness of his word, and the fullness of his name. One British preacher named R.E.O. White said this, the surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. So if you go get a bucket full of water and you're going to go wash your car, and as you're walking, no matter how slowly you walk, water is spilling out, usually all over the floor in our house. But you always get your feet wet. And so here's the thing, if you are full with God's word, you're full of these three things, as you move, it overflows onto those around you. And Paul's going to tell us what that looks like. Look at verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule. This word rule is the word um, similar in our language to umpire or referee. It's an athletic word. 
Best way to understand it is that umpires call people safer out on bases. This is like presides is another word that would work. In other words, Christ secured peace through the cross, and he wants peace to now serve as the umpire in the church. The peace of Christ governs all of the interests in the body of Christ. So this peace of Christ is what Christ has purchased for us. Colossians 1-2, it says, He purchased peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. His death on the cross is what buys the peace for us. This peace helps us stay in tune with one another. Occasionally, a paraphrase like the message will give us a kind of an understanding of a passage. This one, it does that here. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing and cultivate thankfulness. So peace is not saying we all agree. Everybody has the same opinion. We're all a bunch of automatons doing the same exact thing. No, instead, it's we come together and in spite of our differences, we can be united. Because love is not a feeling, it's a decision. So this peace that we're talking about in 15, you can't have without love in 14. Because there will never be peace without love. That's why when our world tries to reconcile people that have been hurt by other people, it will never work without love. Love that says, I see you as an image bearer of God. I see you as having value. I don't see you as the one who hurt me and are a part of this group or that group and are demonizing them. Instead, our world will turn into an eye for an eye version if we go that way. But if we have love, we have everything we need. Then he says at the end of verse 15, and be thankful, either for the peace or for the life situation. We don't really know how he's tying it there, but truly, if you are content, if you are seeing all of this happening, you are going to be thankful. Because the worst thing we can be when we see all this work that the Lord's done is not thankful to the Lord for the work that he's doing. So 12 through 15 have done kind of our interactions with each other. Now the final two verses are going to dig really deep into what each of us looks like. And we cannot miss this. Our individual work spills out. And the place it spills out the most is in this room right here when the church gathers. We are to spill out on each other through life groups, through Bible study, through church gatherings, through fellowships, through get-togethers. Because there are no Lone Ranger Christians. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, this is a really weird phrase, and, and our English has a hard time with this. The translation's great, but it, it, it's hard to get at what's here. So let me explain it to you. The word let in verse 16, Kyle, can you put that back up there for me? The word let is singular, and everything else in the, in, the, in the verse is plural. And so what he's saying is he's saying, let you individually have the word dwell in y'all collectively and teach and admonish y'all through songs and worship and singing. So there's this, there's this kind of back and forth that gets a little lost. But what Paul is saying is each of you has an individual responsibility to the group as a whole. When you aren't a part of the group, the combined church, the church is missing out. The church is not growing. The spilling is not happening like it should. And this order is huge. Let the word of Christ dwell in your heart richly so that all of us will experience the rich teaching and admonishing. 
This word richly means abundantly. Dwelling means to live, to make at home. You want the word of God to kick off his shoes, put his feet up on the coffee table, and relax. It's his place. One translation says, have ample room or remain as a rich treasure. Ultimately, Scripture is to be our home. We're never to move past it. In one of the first days of my teaching Old Testament class with my seventh graders, I remember asking just a hypothetical question. What does this mean? And I had five or six hands shoot up. And I said, hold on a second. I'm sure you've got good ideas. Let's put them down. Let's see what the authority says. And I opened my Bible. And that's the way it should be for all of life. As much as we think we have the answer, we need to go to God's word first and foremost. Paul's point is that every human relationship, every responsibility, whether it entails conquering some obstacle or enemy or coping with someone, must be seen in the light of Christ's work on the cross. The redemptive suffering of Jesus for his church, his dominion as Lord and his authority as judge, has to have a daily functional a part of our lives. If the word of Christ is not allowed to influence us, then we're just playing church. The word of Christ dwelling in us. This must be the focus. Now, don't be fooled when you go in the lobby, right? There's two tables out there with lots of books. Please take them. They're free. Those books are not simple self-help books. They're not simple theology books. They're not simple parenting or marriage books or or counseling books. No, each of these books, which there are plenty of those in the world, each of these books is meant to drive you to one person, drive you to one place. They are all saturated with God's word and they're saturated with Jesus. And so that's where we are to go. We are to make our home in the word and let the word make its home in us. So what that means is you got to make, you got to make it a priority. Get in God's word. We have ways for you to do that here. We have Bible studies, and there are at times where you can make it without having to miss too much family time. And we would love for you to get a part of those. Even if it's just hit and miss, get in a Bible study. Get in a life group. Study God's Word. So back to verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, this, it's kind of, again, it's one of those weird, awkward phrases. I think the New American Standard gets it better, and I want to read it to you. With all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, singing, in th- singing with thankfulness in your hearts. See, the difference here is that he's not saying teaching and admonishing over here and then singing over here. He's actually saying teaching and admonishing through singing. And we know this because in Ephesians, in a similar passage, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, make, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So how do we do this? How does teaching and admonishing work with singing? And I'll tell you, the school that meets here, Paideia, does this really well. As a matter of fact, someone a lot of you know does it exceptionally well. Her name is Sharon True. Some of you know who that person is. She was a longtime member here. She teaches through songs. And I have the privilege of sitting in my office right here, and her classroom's right there, and she always has the window open, so I hear them singing everything. They're singing songs about Jesus. They're singing songs about states. They're singing songs about how to wash your hands in the bathroom. They're singing and teaching through the singing. 
You know, we know this is true, right? We hear songs from 30 years ago, and we know all the words. Just the other day, I was sitting at a football game, and a song came on dealing with ice, ice, and a baby. And I knew all the words. That song was written over 30 years ago, which made me feel really old. But yet the song lyrics came back like that. The Lord has programmed our brains to use singing. That's why when we choose songs here, they're tied to the message. They're tied to God's word. They're tied to what we're going to be going over to reinforce what is done here. Our songs aren't up there to make the worship team happy that they got their favorite song chosen. They're here to make much of God's word, which is what we're doing right now, expounding it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, you can't get to the end of verse 16 with the thankfulness in your hearts to God if you don't start back in verse 12, putting on these things. See, we, we can come together and we can sing all the things we like. We can do church a certain way that fits the way we like. But if we aren't doing it in the right attitude, with the right heart, ending in the right place, which is not, yes, I got my way. It's no, I'm thankful in my heart for what God has done. What God has done. We want to please the Lord, and he's not pleased when we just show up and we go through the motions. He's pleased when it touches our heart. And this gathering is to touch your heart. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Very similar to 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat and drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when we come together, it's to be no different than when we're outside the church. We are to be glorifying God there. We are to be glorifying God here. No compartmentalizing our faith. Most Sundays at the end of the service, I challenge you, go out and live out what we just sang. Go out and live out what we just talked about, what we heard read, what we've done here. Go live it out. Thomas Jefferson was credited with creation of the idea of separation in church and state. Now, it's not in the Constitution. It came from a letter, actually, from Thomas Jefferson to a church. Thomas Jefferson was writing the church to say, you don't want the state to get involved in your church. It's going to screw things up. About 100 years ago, the Supreme Court took that idea, flipped it around, and said, we don't want the state to have church in it. It'll mess up the state, right? We're seeing evidence of that all over the place. Jefferson's letter was twisted to say there is a secular area and then there's a church area. And I'm sorry to say, Supreme Court, you got it wrong. Thomas Jefferson, you got it wrong. There is nowhere we go that is not a sacred area because it all belongs to God. Just like every molecule, every atom in you has made by God, every single atom in this earth world in this universe has the same thing. So what this means is that these are God's spaces. There's nowhere that you will go where you cannot worship him by doing the small things, the big things, the not fun things, the super fun things, but doing it for the glory of the Lord. Look at what he said. He said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that covers everything, all of it, 
Do it for the glory of God. Do it to make God look great. So what do people see when they see you? We are Christ's representatives on earth. We are here to make Christ look good. We do that with our joyous response to his death on the cross. When people go, why do you do that? You go, because my Savior did more for me. Why don't you do that? Because my Savior who loves me told me not to do it. This is the picture we're to have. We are not the focus of the story. We're just characters in it. And I'll leave you with this verse that summarizes that point. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It is his story We are characters in it. And the sooner we get that, the sooner we see that, the sooner the blessings flow, and sooner our world will be changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us be a part of your story. Lord, thank you for letting us be a part of the redemption story, the story that angels long to see. Thank you that we get to be a part of it. Whatever small part you have us playing, we are so blessed to be that. Help us not to be jealous of other people's larger parts. Help us not to long for a smaller part so we can be more lazy. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would be content where you have us and help us to long for more of you. We need more of you. You're there and you're showing yourself to us. We just need to see it. So give us eyes to see it. Give us the the passion that we need to be able to follow you rightly as chosen, holy, and beloved children of our Heavenly Father. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.